It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. When I first heard of our guest today, it was one of those things where when you start to dive into someone's work in the world and, and their purpose and their mission, sometimes you see the name of maybe their brand or their website and you go, oh, that's interesting and I need to know more. So Deanna Bryant, our guest today, she has a really unique brand called Revive Your Midlife Marriage. And when I saw the name of that, First of all, I am not married, although I am approaching midlife. But nonetheless, it sucked me in and I thought, what is this about? And the very first impression, Deanna, when I was going through your work and digging in, which we have so many wonderful subjects to talk about with you today, was the idea of defining intimacy in our lives. I feel like that's one of those words that has so many different meanings and connotations depending on who you ask. What is intimacy to you? And I think Maybe here in the West, for a lot of people, certainly if I think about myself in recent years, prior to digging a little bit deeper into my own emotional life and my own relationships, I think my instantaneous association with the word intimacy was around sexuality exclusively, right? So I'm curious, Deanna, with your work and your personal definition, what's your frame around intimacy? What does that mean to you? And can you educate us about maybe some of the deeper layers of what that means? Sure. Well, of course, a sexual intimacy is part of intimacy, but I think sexual intimacy will only happen if there is intimacy outside of the relationship or outside of the bedroom, actually. Intimacy to me is a connection that involves regular communication. I mean, every relationship, a self-help book, Every podcast is going to talk about communication, but it's more than just talking. Communication is about learning how to speak your truth in a respectful, kind, compassionate manner, and also being able to listen from a place of neutrality and curiosity. And when that communication begins to build, then there is an intimate connection that also happens. And it's about couples giving a 100%. It's not 50-50. It's 100. Each person has to give 100%. Now, will there be times that one partner is able to give less than the other? Yes. And that's where that give and take comes in. So it's give and take. It's communication. It's understanding that you're partner has a perspective that may not be the same as yours. And that's where the acceptance comes in. I can't change you. I don't need to change you. We are in this and chances are you married the person that is going to trigger your own growth. And so it works. Intimacy is about an ongoing connection. It is not a one-time thing. It is not when things are going good. Intimacy even can be about an argument or a fight. Because if you look at those situations as learning to be able to know your partner better in the conflict, loving each other anyway, being respectful with your argument, that builds intimacy too. So there's a lot that goes into intimacy, even sharing your needs and being willing to, I don't believe we can meet all of our partner's needs, but we can be cognizant of what they need from us and be willing to give some of those things, even if it's not a need we have. You know, if your partner needs more time together and you're one of those partners that thrive on getting time out then there comes together. Intimacy is built by the give and take there. So those are just some of the things I see as intimacy. 
A lot of uh, why questions are coming up for me as I listen. <laughs> I'm a big why person. And a few are, I'm curious why you were drawn to this work, or perhaps as part of answering that, I'm curious why people struggle so much with these things. As you share them, they make sense. Some parts of what you share feel like common sense. Some feel like, oh, that makes sense now that I've heard it. Why is it that people struggle so much with something that makes sense once you hear it? I believe we don't have the skills to do those things. We know communication is important. We know intimacy is important. We know there is a give and take in relationship. We understand that we need to accept our partners and love unconditionally. But who teaches us how to do that? There is no training prior to coming into a marriage for those skills. So I think what happens is we know what we should be having, should be doing, but we don't have the playbook. So we're lost and we don't know how to get there. What that brings up for me, Deanna, is the idea that, well, first of all, so many life skills, I think critical life skills, we're talking about relating to our intimate partner, communication. We look at, you know, finances, maybe a certain element of spirituality, self-care. It, it seems like this is one of those subjects that is a critical foundational element of having a balanced, joyful life as a human being that, to your point, is never taught to us. And I want to make sure we get back to Whitney's uh, first question, which was how you got into this. I don't want to leave that as a hanging indent, but as part of that, or maybe a jump off point, first of all, yes, how'd you get into this? But secondarily, before I lose my question is if we grow up looking at the adult relationships as when we're children, right? If I look back and think about my parents, my aunts and uncles, I didn't necessarily have to be gracious about it, the healthiest examples of what intimate, connected, loving relationships look like. I mean, if I really think about the difficulties I've had in my intimate partnerships, a lot of it has been undoing, I think, the patterning or the things that I observed and thought, oh, that's how you conduct yourself as an adult in an intimate relationship and realizing as an adult, oh my God, those things are not working. So two-part question, how'd you get into this? And how do we undo a lot of these subconscious patterns that we've imprinted from childhood on what a relationship should be. Sure. The way I got into this is five years ago, we celebrated our 20-year wedding anniversary. And at that point, we went through a major marital crisis. I mean, major. It was a matter of, do we throw 20 years away or do we figure it out? And at that point, I didn't know what I wanted. My husband didn't want to throw 20 years out. And I was just like, I don't know, maybe I'm just done. So we decided to reach out and get outside support. That outside support was literally sitting in a room and learning how to talk to each other. We sat across. We didn't have somebody sitting there telling us what we needed to be doing, but he allowed us to talk. And kind of was a mediator. And we were able to work through some of our issues, clear up the old stuff, learn new patterns of communication and ways to nurture our relationship. So what happened is our relationship was restored and now we're enjoying something better than ever. So I was teaching at our local university, teaching English and I just decided I want to do something different. So I went back to school and got my coaching certification. And when I thought about what am I most passionate about to decide what my niche was, it was midlife couples. Because the demographic of midlifers, there is more divorce in the midlife demographics than other age groups. So I thought, what if I could help other couples learn some of these skills and to be able to sit together and learn how to talk about some of this stuff. So that's how I launched this. And the second part of what you are talking about, I call those family of origin stories. And it's what we're bringing in from our own homes into the relationship. 
And a lot of times we're bringing in totally different life skills based on those family of origin stories. And what I find is a lot of couples don't have, I mean, there are fewer healthy marriages out there than healthy. And so most of us are coming from families or our parents have either they've been married and divorced for me. My parents had been married and divorced several times from several different people. So here I was having no clue of any skills about have a healthy relationship. So I come in clueless. Now, my husband came from a background where his parents were married till the end. They had a terrible marriage until the end. So he had no idea how to have a healthy relationship. Not only that is, we didn't know how to have a healthy relationship with ourselves, nor how to really have healthy relationships with others. So you bring that together and you've got two people that are clueless about how to relate to another person inside their lives, especially as much time as you're going to spend together with your spouse. So yeah, those family of origin, those old wounds that we bring in from childhood have an effect on our marriages. Because if you have an old wound that you have not worked through, your spouse does something and that triggers you. That old wound, that old pain is going to come up and it's going to cause a problem for you. And then you might start putting somebody else's head on your spouse because you're seeing that other person that hurts you. So you get into all this stuff. And that's one of the reasons I really suggest and have couples do when they're with me is let's talk about your family of origin stories. Let's talk about really what it was like for you growing up. You'd be surprised that we may tell the surface of our lives, but we don't get into the real details. There's some shame around it. We think, well, if I tell you every little detail, you know, you're going to see my family differently. But I believe in talking about that and also those triggers from our childhood that may be triggered now in the relationship. If we don't share that with our spouse, then they're not going to know that that's a hot button. Let's don't go there. So yes, family of origin stories are huge in a marriage and healing those origin stories also is a part of helping a marriage. I was going to piggyback on this, Deanna. To bring up this idea, I think that as we're diving into a, a deeper level of vulnerability in these kind of sharing, maybe that we've never done with a partner before. We're really exploring this style of communication and acknowledging some pain and trauma from our past, whether that is our childhood or our previous relationships. And I think it challenges this, this narrative that culturally, at least I've observed, because I've needed to undo a big portion of this, that the expectations or the intentions for entering an intimate partnership, a relationship, or a marriage. You know, I think for a lot of years, maybe like a lot of people, I had this idea that, oh, I'm just choosing wrong. Like, it shouldn't be this hard. It shouldn't be this difficult. And I think I had sort of this Hollywood romance novel, I don't know, Disney approach of like, it's supposed to be butterflies and rainbows, and it's supposed to be easy because there's a lot of coaches and relationship experts saying it should feel easy with the right person. And I had this narrative that I think I've carried for a lot of years of, ooh, if it's challenging, if it's uncomfortable, if it's bringing up trauma to be looked at and healed, that's a bad thing because it should be easy and it should be Disney and it should be like a rom-com. <laughs> And I'm wondering how much you see that in the people you work with and how much undoing culturally needs to be done with these kind of expectations and, and maybe how often they derail really potentially great relationships because we're like, this is too hard. I'm getting the hell out of here. I agree that culturally we have the wrong idea. And, you know, also, have you ever been around those couples that have been married for a while and they'll say... He's been my best friend for 20 years. And I'm thinking, really? Have you never wanted to kill him? Have you never wanted to smother him in his sleep? Because that's the real part of being married. That's the issue. So 
I think, too, that we're getting a lot of messages from even couples we know that it's easy because no one wants to say what the hard stuff is. No one wants to admit, you know what? I don't even know if I married the right person or I just don't love him right now because we have those thoughts. We have those feelings. Sometimes marriage is boring. Sometimes marriage makes you angry. The truth is there is a myth that even though we think we don't believe, we really do somewhere in the back of our mind that if you marry your soulmate, it is going to be a beautiful marriage. I assert you can marry your soulmate and the person that you should be with and still it will be hard as hell. I have not met many people that have been married for any period of time that it hasn't been one of the hardest things they have ever done. But we don't talk about it. Or we go around acting like everything is great and wonderful. I remember even telling some of my friends, uh, my husband and I had started going to a counselor. They were like, you're kidding me. I thought you guys had the perfect marriage. I think that's what we see. That's what we want people to think. So we're not being real about it. We're just putting off this idea that we've got the rom-com relationship. And it's just not true. It's just not true. Wow. I love that you're digging into some of these misconceptions. And also, Jason and I tend to focus a lot on how people love to share the highlights of their life. I mean, that's really the core of this podcast is opening up about the uncomfortable parts of life and really speaking honestly about them because that gives other people comfort and permission to open up in their way and realize they're not alone. Because the downside, I imagine, and having not been married, I have a limited perspective on this or only the perspective from the outside, I should say, of all these ideas of what marriage might be like and what it looks like to me. And I've heard so many of my friends share the hardships and that leads me to the next part of my question, which would apply, I think, to Jason as well, is what is the value of marriage, especially for someone who's never been married and is witnessing their friends open up and share the hardships? And there are moments where I go, hmm, I don't know if I want to get married knowing all of this. Like, is it really appealing? Do I want to go through this? And what I've been told over and over again is when you meet the right person, then you'll want to get married. But going back to Jason's point, I'm like, well, how do I know? Like, what if I have been with a person that I could have had a pleasant marriage with, but thought, oh, this is too hard. I'm going to end it. You know, it's kind of hard to verbalize. I've never said this out loud before, but like, is it possible that I've been in relationships in the past that could have been successful marriages, but for whatever reason at the time, I decided let's end this relationship. I never got to see it evolve to that point. And with all of that perspective, my definition of the right relationship has evolved. But then what you're sharing, I'm like, well, maybe I don't even really know what a solid relationship is. It's like getting me to question it, if that makes sense. So it's a two-part question. What is the value of a marriage for someone that has never been married and hasn't experienced the highs and the lows, ups and downs of at all? And then also, like, how do you really know when someone is a good fit for you for a marriage, given all of these different like definitions of that that are we're hearing from other people all the time? Well, the value in being married is there is something special about having a camaraderie, a partner in life, someone to share the ups and downs with, to build a history with, to go through life and not necessarily feel like you're all on your own. For me, I wasn't ever going to get married. <laughs> I was like... You know, uh, my parents really suck at this. I don't even think I'm going to do this. But there is something special about also the struggle. And I'll tell you what I mean by this. You know, if you think about choosing to do a sport, 
maybe you're going to run a marathon and you have increments along the way to get you to that marathon and to get you to that place of strength that you can run with the big dogs. I think marriage is kind of like that. You're just kind of starting out and you're building momentum and you're having to practice harder and you're having to work harder and you're having to go up to the next level. And there's something about doing that with your spouse, watching each other grow through the process. It's nice to have someone that knows you on every level, the good, the bad and the ugly and still loves you in spite of that. So there's some good things about that, really good things about it. We share. It's a partnership. However, I don't think you have to be married to have all the things you want in life. I don't think marriage is a requisite for being happy. I think there can be people that are single, have good friends that fill that niche. Maybe they don't need somebody with them every day. And that is totally cool. You know, if something happens to my husband, I've already said, it's not that I've had a bad marriage. I just won't do this again. You know, it's hard. I have loved it, but I'm not starting over this mess anymore. I'm done after this one. Now, as far as finding the right person, I heard it so many times. You'll just know that you know, or you'll just know it when you have met them. I don't believe that. And because let me tell you this, do you know how many men I thought I knew that I knew that was the one? You know what? I could have done that all along the way. And then a little on down the road after a year or so in the relationship thought, you know what? Maybe this isn't the one. So I also don't think you have one soulmate. I think you could marry several different people and have a good partnership and a good marriage. I don't believe in soulmates. I believe there are certain people that you're better suited for. Certainly, there has to be a working relationship, common goals, common ideals. But there's not just one soulmate in the whole entire universe. So for me, when I was choosing my spouse, because my parents had, they married for all the good feelings they felt, you know, that chemistry, they married for chemistry. I decided to take a calculated risk. So I weighed my options. Here are the pros with this guy. Here are the cons. Can I live with these cons? Because I know these are his weaknesses. I know these are the things that bother me. Can I live with those? And do these pros outweigh these cons? Now, I was attracted to him. There was a chemistry. But I knew already in my mind that chemistry and attraction would not do it because I'd seen it not work in my own home. So I made some calculated risks with my husband. I really thought hard about getting married to him and our compatibility and what our common goals were. And no doubt about it, I made a great choice. But is he the only one for me? No. I think I could have been happy with other people, too. I don't think I've ever said that to him. (laughs) So, (laughs) but I would. I am an honest person, but I am glad that I'm sharing my life with him. So I hope that answers your question. It does. And I really appreciate your honesty. I'm sure it's going to resonate with the listener because that honesty is so refreshing, like I said earlier. And it leads me to the next question was, How do you know when it's not the right marriage for you? As you're speaking, I'm thinking about a friend of mine who has been in a really challenging marriage and has tried really hard to stick through it, to work through it. But there are some things that have been shared with me that feel like red flags. And to me and my friend as well, expressing that She doesn't believe that she should stay in this marriage, but she feels conflicted from a number of levels I won't get into. But, you know, from the outside, it's easy to say she should just end the marriage, right? This isn't the good. She can do better. All these different things that we say. But perhaps, and especially from your perspective, having worked with so many people and also been in a a 20-year marriage yourself, what do you see as like How does someone even figure that out, I guess? Like, is there like a formula to figuring out if you're in the right marriage? Are there 
important red flags to know of? Like, are there things that are basically impossible to work through and improve together? I think it's very individual to a person because what I would tolerate may not be what somebody else would tolerate. Or the things that it's important to me may not be as important to someone else. So I think to say this is the things you're looking for, it will be different for all of us. Although I think we can say that there are these red flags. Some of those red flags would be if you are dating someone and they have a history of cheating. Maybe they have been flirtatious with other people in your presence. And maybe if they've even cheated on you during the relationship, a lot of those are signs of consummate cheaters. And I think I would be very concerned about anybody trying to overlook that or thinking that when we get married, they'll be faithful. Oh, we were just dating or we were broken up for a few weeks. That would be a red flag to me. Another red flag is if there is a lot of drug or alcohol abuse in the dating relationship, I see a lot of people excusing it and being like, well, they're just having a lot of fun. They're just wild, but we're single and everything's great. But it's a pattern that can translate into marriage. And it may be fun to have those every now and then. I'm not opposed to going out and having a big time. But if it's a steady thing every day where somebody is drugging or drinking, just remember that you may be having kids. And is that going to be okay? When you come home and want to connect with that spouse, is that going to be okay every day what you're dealing with. And usually those kind of problems progress. So I would be very careful with that. You know, we talk about physical abuse. That's a given. You don't want to marry somebody that's physically abusive. But here's what I see happen a lot. They may not marry somebody who's physically abusive, but they'll marry somebody who is emotionally abusive because they think that, well, that's not as damaging. Oh, he's just got a bad temper or she's just got a bad temper. I would say anybody that puts you down or hits you, for instance, they know something that bothers you. And when they're angry, they push that button. Big red flag, because you're going to have hot button issues later on down the marriage. And if they're always poking you where you're hurting, red flag, because it gets harder when you get married. Everybody shows their best at the beginning. I always say, do not get married early on in the relationship, I suggest two to three, even four years of dating so you can get through all the chemistry and butterflies and rainbows and really see what living around this person is going to be like when they're ugly, when they're great. You need somebody that's going to support you to support your dreams, to love you unconditionally, even on your crappy days. That's important. Those are the things that really matter. I also think this is an old school thing, but I honestly think how your spouse treats others, treats their family, treats their coworkers, says a lot about how they're going to treat you. If they're respectful to family members, friends, coworkers, chances are they're going to be respectful of you within the home because they've already got that practice going on. I wouldn't marry somebody that wasn't a good listener because you know what? If they don't have listening skills, they're not going to hear a thing you say, and then you're going to be resentful of it later on down the road. Also, goals. Do you really enjoy the same kind of things together or do you just overlook that you don't because you're all excited to be together? Yeah, he golfs every Saturday. It's so cute. He just loves golf. You know what? Five, 10 years into this relationship and maybe when you have children, is his golfing every Saturday all day going to be okay with you? So get through those years. See, do we really have the same goals? Do we really have the same ideas about raising children? Do we really have the same financial mindset? Those things are so important. Those are just some of the things I would say about choosing a mate. Thank you. And I'm glad you brought that up too, because there's this odd pressure. Jason, I don't know if it's as much for you as as a man, but I feel like as a woman, at least the way 
I was raised and the friends that I have, there's this odd pressure to get married. And I mean, at a certain point, I feel like now that I'm a little older, people think are like less impatient. Like they're like, well, maybe she'll never get married and that's fine. <laughs> there's still like some judgment there. But especially when I was younger, there was like so much pressure to get married. And this idea of like, well, if, if this person doesn't propose to you within a year or two, then it's never going to happen. Or, you know, what's taking so long? And there's all this like rushing. And I absolutely agree because you discover so much about a person in a relationship after that two year mark. You know, like that to me has always been like the turning point. And I'm sure that there's a lot more to discover after the three and four year, et cetera. And so the rush seems very odd because that big question, what is the rush? Once you get married, now you're with this person. And if you want to stay committed to them, what happens if you discover they're not the right person for you and you've rushed into something and now you have to go through that process of divorce, Mm -hmm. which leads me to that follow-up question to my last one is, what if you realize that the person you're with, given all those circumstances that you shared with us, what if you realize this person is not a good fit for me? What is that transition period like that you've seen with your clients and people you've spoken to? How does someone kind of get through all the challenges of deciding to end a marriage? Usually what happens is when a couple comes to me, a lot of times it's one partner that wants to be there and one that doesn't. And then they begin working on the relationship We begin talking and communicating and learning those skills. And a lot of times they leave because only 10% of the work is done with me. The 90% of it is done when they walk away from me and start putting these things into practice. So if you have a spouse that is resistant to that change, who is bucking you all the way, who seems just not to care or not be willing to put the effort into it. You have two choices. And I have said this to clients or to a client before. You have two choices. You can stay in this marriage and accept things as they are and just choose to be happy with yourself and just go on. Or you can say enough is enough. And there's nothing wrong with leaving a marriage when you have somebody that is not willing to give their 100%, is not willing to get the help they need, is not willing to change to make the marriage work. You can't do this alone. It is a partnership. It is a two-way street. One person can't fix the relationship. Now, I've also seen this happen. As one partner changes and begins relating differently to the relationship, sometimes that spouse wants to get on board. They see their spouse changing. They see them growing beyond them and they want to catch up. They don't want to be left behind. That happens too. So one partner can be an impetus for change. So if you've got a reluctant partner, just don't give up. You know, things may change. Get the help you need. At least try. But there is no reason, I would never suggest anybody stay in a relationship that's a dead end after you've tried everything there is to try. Not for the kids, not for the finances, not because you have a bunch of years under your belt. No, life is too short to stay in a bad marriage. You talk about change, Deanna, and it reminds me of a video I saw a few years back where um, they were interviewing uh, a couple in their, I think they were in their early 90s, you know, and they had been married like 60 or 70 years. And one of the questions I'll never forget, they turned to the husband and they said, this kind of a prototypical question, right? You know, what do you think some of the secrets are to making this work? How have you stayed in this for so many decades? And why have you continued to choose this person? And I'm paraphrasing now, but the husband said something akin to, my wife has been 10 or 12 different women over the 70 years that we've been together. And I have made a choice, conscious choice, to love every single version of her. 
And I just started crying when I, he was so eloquent and so sweet in the sense of acknowledging that this woman had so many different passions and career choices and evolutions and changes. And he just chose to love every single one of them. And it made me think about how maybe when some of us get into a relationship, those values, those passions, those things that are important to us, we connect with those. Well, she's really into basketball and, and Thai food and has a particular spiritual or religious belief or, or whatever it is. We get excited about, oh, you feel that way too. That excites me. But maybe as a person evolves and changes, if one is prone to really seek that out, it can shake the other partner's sense of safety and stability because it's like, oh, I thought, wait, I thought you were into that. And I thought that's who you were. It's really interesting thing to think about loving all the different versions of a person, even though we don't know what that person is becoming or how they're going to change. And I'm curious, Deanna, you know, how do we cultivate that sense of acceptance, curiosity, and also encouraging that partner to seek out those things, even if they challenge our sense of who we think they are? That's a deep one, I think. I think it comes down to loving unconditionally. And love is a choice. It's not a feeling. I mean, I hear people say, I love him, but I'm just not in love anymore. What that tells me is I was in lust to start with, but now that I don't feel lust, I don't feel in love. Love is a choice. It can be a feeling. It can be a lust and an excitement, but it is a choice coming down the road. Also, I think that if couples understood that who they married, if someone made sure we told everybody before they get married, who you're married to now and who you will be married to 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road is going to change because you are going to change. That is a natural evolution of the human spirit. We're all going to change. Now, what I have heard with couples is that you've got somebody that's open to change. They're always looking for new experiences. They're exploring. They're, they're growing. And then you have a maybe somebody who is just set in their ways and just kind of stuck. That's where the disconnect happens a lot of time when you have a, a stuck partner that doesn't change. And that's where you have to say, you know what, I can't fix this person, but I'm going to continue to grow and evolve. If we can't work this out, then we have other options. I do think we have to love each other through all the phases because we change. We have children. We change. Our children get older. There's lots of chaos. There's lots of, you know, chaotic schedules. That's going to stretch you and change you again. You're going to have teenagers. That's going to nearly kill you. So you're going to change again. You're going to be changing constantly because life does not let us stay the same. We will grow. We become and if we can choose to love, I love that story. If you can choose to love all the different parts of your spouse because you love their essence deeply, then you're going to get through a really rich experience with your spouse. That's when the years looking back become rich, when you can say, you know, I know, knew her when I met her, but I've watched her grow and develop. And wow. Who I have today is even better than was before. So yes, it's a choice to love throughout life. Like I have been going through menopause. If my husband didn't choose to love me right now, we would not be married because it is a not a nice phase. It really isn't. But there's always that light at the end of the tunnel. You talk about the difference between lust and love. And I think this is such a juicy and interesting topic because perhaps you can confirm this, Deanna. You know, one of the alarms that maybe couples go through is you get a certain number of years into something and like, wow, I don't want to rip this person's clothes off anymore. Like this must mean that I'm, as you said, I'm not in love anymore. This leads into a larger question of your work, which is if people perceive that that is gone, 
that's a terminology maybe they'd use. Like, I just don't have the desire to like ravage this person. I don't feel like I want to, our sex life is gone. The spark is gone. Or as B.B. King said, you know, thrill is gone, babe. (laughs) I mean, this is something that has persisted in human intimate partnerships for millennia, right? And I'm wondering when people approach you, or maybe if you want to speak to your own experience, you know, you have this perception of the spark is missing, the thrill is gone. What are some of the factors that I suppose, contribute to that feeling, the things that couples experience. And moreover, I know it's a very individual thing, but some ways that people can revive that or reignite that in their lives. I think we go through phases of that. No, we're not going to want to rip each other's clothes off. We're not going to go from zero to 60 in a nanosecond and have sex in every room or cars and everything for the rest of our lives. It's just not going to happen. Does that mean you can't have passion in your relationship still, even if a lot of times we equate passion with that spontaneous sex, with that sexual energy, with that, you know, that just dying to get near them? And I think that's a false sense of true passion. That's fun. Sure, it's fun. We all love that. But in reality, that will not sustain a long-term marriage. But for those couples who think the thrill is gone, here's what I've seen happen. They have allowed everything around them, kids, building careers, chaotic schedules, keeping the house up, all of these things before the relationship. And it's what I call intimacy atrophy. We've stopped working on the core of our relationship, something that was very important to us in the beginning. And we've allowed all of these other things to take precedence. So, yeah, the thrill will be gone because bottom line is if you don't keep stoking a fire, it's going to go out and be cold ash before long. And I think that's what happens a lot of time in relationship is there's no nurturing of this passion and excitement. Now, there's several things that I have clients do to go back and get those feelings of love and passion back together. Some of those things, I have them make a list of their fondness and appreciation for their spouse. Gets them back to, why did I marry them? What is good about this partner? And so I have them make a list of everything they love about their partner. And I'm talking details such as, I love the way he smells, or I love her soft skin, or I love the way he laughs. I like his work ethic. You know, everything you can think about, because it's going to fill you with those loving feelings that maybe you have forgotten about. Because after a while, we're looking at all that's negative. It's kind of like that shifting your mindset or everybody tells you now when you start feeling low, make that gratitude list. Well, that's kind of what you do in your relationship when you're you feel like you're going sideways is make that fondness and admiration list, admiration list. The other is get back to doing the little things that used to really matter in the relationship. You've been married a while. You sit on the couch far apart. You don't really necessarily snuggle up anymore at night. You're really not holding hands. You might do the quick hug upon leaving the house. But how about a five-second hug? We're just kissing on the cheek, kissing on the mat. We're not really kissing, not going on special date nights. Or couples get into the routine of doing the same thing on date nights to where it's almost boring. We're just going out to eat. That's what we do all the time. Instead of being creative about the things they're doing to nurture that passion and excitement in the relationship. So it's got to be an intentional effort to keep passion alive in the relationship. Is it going to be that feeling of passion you had at the beginning? No, but it's going to be richer and deeper, but you've got to fuel the fire. It's not just going to happen naturally because you married each other and you fell in love. It has to be intentional. Even sitting down once a week and just talking about your relationship, putting together Saturday mornings where you have coffee together and just 
chit chat. Maybe there's an issue. Maybe there's goals. Maybe that's where we really talk about what's going on in our week. Those are the things we're missing that we have to get back to to nurture that passion and excitement in the relationship. This makes me think about maybe one of the most uncomfortable elements of marriage, which is infidelity. And I imagine this comes up often enough. I don't know statistically how many marriages involve in some sort of cheating, unfaithfulness, but I imagine it's common enough because it seems like that to me from the outside. So how do you navigate that in a marriage for you as when you're working with somebody and that's facing that issue in their marriage? It's more common than I even like to consider. It happens so much. And again, I think it's because the relationship hasn't been nurtured unless you just happen to be with a spouse that is, you know, always being unfaithful. I really believe that a lot of times with the couples I work with, if one partner has been unfaithful, there is something unhealthy in the relationship. There's something that's not happening in the relationship. There's issues There are unresolved issues. There's a lack of intimacy. Something is going wrong. Probably even bump up affairs to the fact that now because of social media, we're having more emotional affairs, which are just as damaging because people are getting involved. They're sharing their stuff. They're being closer to someone else on social media than they're even their spouse. So we have that dynamic, too. It is the worst betrayal that you can imagine in your relationship, because what happens is you begin to feel like there's something wrong with you. I'm not enough. They don't love me anymore. They don't respect me. They don't care about me. I've put all my time into this relationship and, you know, this is my payback. It affects your self-esteem and your self-worth because it's such a terrible betrayal One of the things the cheating partner has got to understand that if they have left the extramarital relationship, they've asked forgiveness. If they have felt terrible, if they have, you know, said everything they know to say to make things right, if they're going to counseling with their spouse, that spouse is not going to be done dealing with that just because the cheating partner may have put that behind them. The cheating partner is going to have an easier time shutting that down and moving on than the partner that has been betrayed because they are really carrying the brunt of the emotional pain and baggage. So the partner that's been unfaithful has got to have a lot of patience with that spouse that is hurting and be able to say, I'm sorry, I've hurt you as many times as you see it's necessary. You know, some of this is you've got to suck it up. You've done a lot of damage. You've placed a lot of shit on your spouse and you got to suck it up and affirm them as many times as it takes. And it may, what I find, it takes years to move past an affair. Years. It does not happen overnight. The spouse that has been cheated on is going to have trust issues that are not going to go away overnight. They're going to want to look through the phone. They're going to want to look through the emails. They're going to want to know if you say you're working late, are you really working late? Especially if an affair has happened, you know, at the office or outside of it. So there's going to be a need for the unfaithful spouse to give their spouse greater access to their lives than maybe they have before. And I know a lot of people are like, well, that's crossing my boundaries. I'm not going to do that. You've broken trust. And if you're really wanting to build that trust back up, be an open book. You owe that to that partner. And for the partner that's been cheated on, I would say, don't hold it over their head forever. You know, they have done what they've done. You are going to continue to have periods of grief, which involves anger denial, pain, you're going to go through all of those things and it's going to be cyclic. So give yourself some grace. Don't expect yourself to heal from it overnight. And also don't keep beating your spouse over the head with it 
and expecting them to pay for it for the rest of your marriage. So that's why I always think you have got to get outside mediation for this kind of thing. I just don't know any couple that has been able to heal from infidelity without getting outside help. It's just impossible. It's too emotionally charged. This brings up a question, Deanna, about, I think, the nature of the containers of our relationships. I've certainly seen a lot more friends, acquaintances, and just discussion in culture about are we as human beings biologically wired for monogamy or is it a social convention that has been imprinted upon us and we just see that as, well, that's just what we do. You see the rise of a lot of really unique structures with open marriages, open relationships, polyamory, and so many different forms of that. I mean, I have different friends that the nuances and the agreements and the communication is very unique to that container. I suppose the first question is, do you believe that humans are biologically wired for monogamy or is it maybe sort of a patterning or social imprint? Is it both? And B, do you work with any clients that are exploring alternative agreements to their relationships? And if so, what have you seen with those? I have not had any couples that are in a different than a monogamous relationship. So I can't really speak to that. Now, I do know that there are couples with open marriages. Again, I've, I've not dealt with those. But my thoughts on those is I do believe, obviously, there is a social construct to that. And for me, I don't think I could think outside that box. Is that a social construct or is that just me? Am I just that person that says it's just us or it's nothing? I probably am. I, I don't think that I could do that, but it doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it because, you know, I have family members and they live very alternative marriages. They're very happy. It is working for them. And I would never criticize what they're doing because it's not the norm. I remember there was a point in my life that I was very narrow-minded, and it was because I had been brought up in the Southern Evangelical Church. And so I thought very differently about what marriage was, what the marriage uh, relationship, what the role of a wife and a husband, and it's so fucked up. But I believed some of those messages. It's like to each his own. I'll be honest, in the evangelical South where I live, I'm in the Bible Belt. So if if you're doing that, you're probably keeping it quiet unless you're in one of the big cities, just because it's the way it is down here. No, we don't all, you know, have overalls on and go around barefoot drinking, you know, bush beer all the time. But we are a more conservative area. So I don't see that as much as I think probably in the larger cities you would see. The couple that I was speaking to in my family there in Washington, it's a very progressive place. I don't live in a very progressive place. So that maybe that's not why I don't see more of that happening. To each his own. If that works in your relationship, if an open marriage works for you and your spouse, as long as you're both okay with it, hats off to you. That's off to you. One question I wanted to get to, Deanna, that it's been kind of in my Rolodex of my brain, is how many frameworks and systems of relating to each other are out there? You know, we have things like the five love languages. We have things like attachment styles. We have things like, what's the other one, Whitney, that we always reference? My brain is questioner, knower, rebel. Well, that's not relationship related, but Gretchen Rubin's... Four Tendencies. Yeah, Four Tendencies. Thank you. Right. Thank you. So as Whitney said, not necessarily exclusive to intimate partnerships, but you know, we, we have Enneagrams and we have all this... We have horoscopes. We have all this stuff of like, here's a framework of understanding yourself as a human being and especially the horoscope thing. You know, There's an ongoing joke of like, there's a meme out there that I see a text exchange between a mom and a son. And the son is texting his mom. It's a screenshot and says, mom, what was my birth time? And the mom responds, you stay away from that girl. <laughs> so we have all of these human relating frameworks. I'm wondering, Deanna, do you think that they can be beneficial? Or do you feel like 
humans can get so attached to like, well, you know, he's a cancer and he's an Enneagram five, so it ain't going to work. Like just blah, blah, blah. What's the balance between, yeah, this helps us understand and relate to ourselves and each other, but maybe if we get too attached to it, it can limit our options because that person doesn't fall under all these categories that are going to work for me. I don't think we should attach to one thing. I think there's a little bit of psychology and understanding. I think there's a little bit of knowing about family of origin and knowing about systems and families and how they affect the relationship. If you want to know horoscopes or Enneagrams, yeah, I think those would help too. The thing about it is there's no shortage of understanding people and relationships anymore. To say that I don't understand my spouse or I don't know how to have a good marriage in this day and time is like saying, I can't see the sky. It's everywhere. It's all around you. There's so many resources. So no, I don't think there's one thing. I think there's a lot of things. And when I work with clients, I give them a reading list that they can begin reading. And on my podcast as well, I always reference books that would be helpful for couples to read together. Because I don't think one author, one way is going to work for everybody. Again, each marriage is unique and different. One may speak to you as a couple, one maybe not, you know. Enneagram may be a little too complicated for you or just too, it's very involved. So I know that a lot of of people are like, it's just too much information. But I think it's a great thing as well. So no, I think a mix of a lot of things, and I don't think it just has to be about relationships. I think The self-help industry is huge, but also understanding ourselves as individuals, getting to work through our own issues. Those are some of the things that are important to know and begin to work on as a partner, not just about the relationship, but working on yourself and finding out who am I? Oh, this is my Enneagram. Now it makes sense I am the way I am. So no, I don't think there's a one size fits all. Here's what happens though. Couples just believe that if you're married, it's just going to suck. You know, it's just going to be hard. It's just going to be that way. It's what married life is. It's just hard. Just stay single. Don't get married. And so people buy into it. They think marriage, you know, being like this is that's just married life. And they just let it go instead of going, you know, we could really have a better marriage now than we did in the beginning. Hey, now there's an idea. Let's look for the solutions. Let's find some really good books on this. Let's read them together. That's the solution. Find what works for you. It's like a deep spirit and willingness to experiment is what I'm taking away from you, Deanna, is the unique pieces of the puzzle are going to vary so much from couple to couple, person to person. And having a spirit of curiosity and experimentation, I think, is what I'm certainly taking away from this. As we get close to the finish line with you, Deanna, I wanted to hear just a few of those book recommendations. We have a great transcript with our show notes here, and we always love to give you know, the things that you found most beneficial, are there any authors, teachers, or specific books that you say, you know what, this has really impacted my life and I want to share it with the listeners today? My memory is absolutely horrible. I wish I had my books in here. So i tell you one author that is really good is John Gottman. John Gottman started years ago, I believe in the 70s, researching what makes marriage work. He did intensive, I mean, physiological studies on how couples were emotionally dealing their heart rate during conflict or during, you know, conversations. And he did all this research for years and years and years. And he has a book called What Makes Marriage Work, which is a really good one. And then Seven Keys to a Happy Marriage. Those are two really good books. In fact, anything he's written is really good. I did study at their school on relationships and helping couples. And I found his books and his research. It's backed. It's not just somebody's opinion. It's backed by his research, which is so helpful. And it gives very practical tips for couples. I suggest the five love languages. I think that's great. I think couples should at least, you know, you don't have to get the Enneagram book and know the insides and out, but just 
kind of doing a surface perusal of your personality type is really good. Goodness, I've got a billion more and I can't think of all the, but I can send you a list that you can put on your notes. I'd be happy to do that. That's wonderful, Deanna. And on that note, for you, dear listener, we want to guide you to Deanna's wonderful podcast. It's Revive Your Midlife Marriage Podcast, Speaking of Resources. And you have so many wonderful episodes on your website, which is also reviveyourmidlifemarriage.com. Uh, looking at your podcast post, your resources, there's certainly just a deep wealth of soulful information. Deanna, you've shared so many wonderful perspectives here today, and you bring so much heart and soul you know, just feel your heart in your work, which I think is so important when we're talking about mending and healing intimate relationships. So check that out, dear listener. It is on our website, which is wellevator.com. You can go there and click on the podcast section. It will take you to the show notes where you can see the entire transcript for this episode, all the wonderful resources we mentioned. We'll link to Deanna Bryant's website, her social media handles, everything that you need. If you really felt her presence and her spirit here today and you want to work with her if you're going through a challenging time in your relationship, it's been an absolute pleasure, Deanna, having you. You immediately make me feel comfortable. I'm sure Whitney feels the same way. You just have a certain presence that is so comforting and so warm. And thanks for sharing all your wisdom with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It has been truly a pleasure. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.